future for this organization is great. I mean, it really is. And we've got some tremendous opportunities that I think that are going to make even a more dynamic, challenging environment, you know, to work in. And I am committed to ensuring that we, you know, mold the workplace and accommodate the workforce to be the best it can be in kind of meeting these challenges. And I'm very excited about getting started, you know, to get those things uh, moving in terms of redesigning the workplace, accommodating the workforce, being competitive for these new opportunities, you know, building on those opportunities to make the organization even better. Welcome to ORAU at 75, a special series celebrating ORAU's 75th anniversary from the creators of Further Together, the ORAU podcast. We stand on the shoulders of scientific pioneers like Dr. William G. Pollard and Dr. Alvin Weinberg, who built and grew what started as the Oak Ridge Institute for Nuclear Studies. Learn about the history of OREU through the words and memories of the scientific leaders, experts, and everyday people who have made OREU what it is today, a university consortium on the cutting edge of the nation's scientific enterprise. Welcome to another episode of Further Together, the ORU podcast. My name is Michael Holtz. I am your host, and I am really excited today. I'm always excited when we have guests, but I'm really excited to have our president and CEO, Andy Page, join me for a conversation. Andy, how are you? Fine, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me to be part of the program today. Absolutely glad to have you. Um, it's been a little while, so we have a lot to kind of catch up on. But wanted to, um, your title, obviously, President and CEO, but um, tell us a little bit about how you got to that point, since it's been a little while since we've shared that information. Well, actually, uh, HR contacted me today on my work anniversary. I had to go back and realize that I've been with ORU for 21 years. Really? Um, talk about time flying. Um, and I had to kind of reflect on 21 years and how I started out, you know, uh, with the organization. But um, no, I didn't I didn't start, obviously, as the president CEO. I, I actually started as a project manager in the national security program uh, of ORU at the okay. time. Uh, and that program was located in Washington, D.C. It was not here in Oak Ridge. It's very similar to like the work we do up at NIOSH in Cincinnati, it was in the national capital region. And it was a, a national security program that was formed at the request of um, the forerunner of the National Nuclear Security Administration, NNSA. Prior to before it became NNSA, it was under DOE, under defense programs. And defense programs came to ORU and asked to establish a, um, a program uh, for um, defense programs to help them further train, evaluate, and exercise uh, the department's assets related to radiological or nuclear detection or um, counterterrorism at the time. Uh, so that was about, I think the program was formed in 1997, and I joined it in 1999 as a project manager. And that's how I kind of got started at ORU. Okay. Um, and sort of obviously rose up the chain <laughs> to the top well, spot, through, right? Over. I guess through attrition or luck or, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know. I, you know Everyone I else taking in. a step backward, right? Whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, I mean, so what really kind of propelled the program forward, of course, was 9-11. Um, right. 
when 9-11 occurred, uh, there was uh, suddenly the United States was faced with a huge counterterrorism threat and a homeland defense and a homeland security threat. And so it really propelled the use of the program uh, to not only benefit um, DOE and NNSA, but also allowed us to start serving other, you know, um, organizations within the, within the federal government. Okay. So we started programs, for example, uh, with the FBI, uh, with the Critical Incident Response Group and Hostage Rescue Team down in Quantico, you know, providing advisors, training advisors, um, and WMD coordinators, um, you know, with the Bureau. Uh, we expanded uh, that work uh, into uh, providing forensic analysis and forensic experts into what was known as the uh, Terrorist Explosive Device Analytical Center, or TDAC, uh, at Quantico, because just about the same time as many uh, of our listeners will recall, we were entering the war with Iraq and Afghanistan, and IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices, had become a very big weapon of choice uh, for the insurgents that were killing or maiming uh, a lot of uh, American service personnel. And the Federal Bureau of Investigation had was tasked to, file, tasked to come up with a quick way of analyzing uh, and um, uh, looking at and pulling the forensic evidence of these IED um, pieces to trace them back to the insurgent bomb makers in country. So um, uh, we started that, you know, with the FBI, with the FBI, that grew to over 200 employees working at the, the height of the war in Iraq wow. and Afghanistan. So, um, and then of course we expanded the programs uh, out for Homeland Security out to the state of California. We built an entire Homeland Security exercise and evaluation program for the state of California and ran that for many years in conjunction with their Office of Emergency Preparedness out there. We started programs with the State Department uh, to do training overseas. Obviously, we supported the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, many employees, some of these employees that are still with us today, uh, were at the forefront of working with the new Department of Homeland Security and putting uh, federal response plans into place to help safeguard the the nation against further terrorist uh, events or you know uh, incidents, and so it was a it 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 ramped up to be you know a very exciting program you know to be working in uh, with you know some great people working there and was really um, kind of the one of the highlights of my times at Oregon. Awesome. Um, I had a couple of conversations with um, Freddie and his team about preparedness and. One of the themes that kept coming up, which you've talked about, is how 9-11 really changed, from a national perspective, our preparedness posture, um, where you know, it became a much more active thing um, and really changed a lot of our approach to preparedness. And some of the things that you're talking about are definitely evidence of that. Yeah, I think, you know, one, just a, a quick example of, you know, certain agencies that never really thought about preparedness before suddenly had to think about it in a very real way. For example, uh, the Bureau of Reclamations with the Department of Interior was responsible for all of the ICAN, iconic dams 
in the western United States when you think right. about the Hoover Hoover Dam, you know, or other dams, and they had no preparedness plans in place to protect, you know, the vital critical infrastructure um, of you know those type of very important and critical infrastructure assets, and so they they needed advice and they needed um, they needed uh, people who could conduct vulnerability studies and could point them in the right direction about uh, how to protect and prepare for a critical incident and then walk them through the necessary um, kind of essential elements of that preparedness posture and then actually train their people and exercise those people to determine um, you know, how they could further protect themselves. And it was also much more, more about just their preparedness, but about their ability to reach out to other either law enforcement agencies or emergency management agencies in their region to form a kind of a collaborative integrated response plan around assets like dams. And they had never really thought out of the box in that way that, you know, hey, we need to coordinate, coordinate with the local sheriff department. We need to coordinate with the local hospital associations. We need to coordinate with, you know, the FBI. We need to coordinate with all these other agencies, and we make this asset much more harder to um, have something bad happen to it because we have all of this, this integrated support that can respond or prevent, you know, things from happening. And and I, I think our work through with agencies like the Bureau of Reclamations or with the state of California and with the FBI um, helped integrate all of those assets together which became a much, then they had much more of an integrated preparedness plan than they had before. And I think that was part of the really the cool thing uh, about being able to work through, you know, those type of problems with them. Right, and a lot of that work um, still bears fruit today in terms of how those agencies and how community assets work together mm-hmm. in preparedness planning for, you know, not just hard assets like the Hoover Dam, but in communities like, Oak Ridge and Knoxville. Yeah, it's it's much more, I think it's much more normalized today simply because of all of the work that we did post 9-11 to get to get to to bring that into consideration uh, by those agencies and to get them to cooperate. I mean, one of the basic lessons of 9-11, of course, was that, you know, many of the federal agencies protecting the homeland were not working together (laughs) or didn't, weren't sharing information or weren't integrated in a, in a way in which they could perhaps have caught, you know, some of the aspects of that terrorist incident before it happened. And so there was a big push to um, further integrate, collaborate, and, um, um, you know, make sure that all agencies were working together uh, to ensure the homeland security or homeland defense of the country. So how do you move from that program to um, now you're the president and CEO. And how long have you been in the president and CEO role? Um, I have to go back and think, but it's been about <laughs> 2000, 2010. So, okay. um, yeah, I guess there's a funny story behind that. Um, Cause I was, um, I was a program director of this program by, you know, 2009, 2010. And I think, you know, I said, we, we probably had, you know, over 250 employees that were part of this program, and it was all centered in Washington or the national capital region. And I was just, you know, I was, 
I was very pleased with the mission of the program. I was pleased with the progress that we were making. Um, I, I was very pleased with the people I was working with, both on the contractor side and the federal side. I had great support for my federal counterparts, whether they were in you know, the Department of Energy, National Security Administration, or the FBI, um, or Department of State, all the way out to California, where, you know, I got to spend time, you know, with state officials out there. And, um, and then the president's CEO was Ron Townsend. Many of our employees remember Ron, uh, who had been with the company about, you know, 12 years at that point. And Ron was selected to go to Battelle uh, and head up their laboratory operations. Uh, which was a, a great step for him. And so he announced, um, you know, he was leaving and they immediately began a search for, you know, the next CEO. Um, and there were at that time about maybe six of us that were program directors. We had six programs running at the time. And, you know, I just got on the phone with the other six program directors and said, you know, hey, I don't know who they're looking for. We've never had an inside candidate, you know, be president or you and it all of its 70 something years had never chosen, you know, someone to come up from within. I said, but, you know, I, I don't want to come to work on a Monday morning and find out that this person is the new CEO and I don't, you know, know anything about them or, um, you know, how we're going to kind of start over. So I said, if you guys are interested, we should throw our hat in the ring and just see where it goes. And so yeah. that's what I did. I just, you know, brushed off my resume and sent it into HR. Uh, wherever it went at the time and right. um, then started going through the selection process and you know I kept getting surprised every time that I was asked back I was like every time I went to an interview I thought okay well that's it you know you know I gave it the college try and you know get back to business but I got a another call back and another call back and then in the final interview um, it's probably a funny story the last question I got was the typical interview question why do you want this position? You know, right. why do you, why do you want to be the CEO of ORU? And it, I had to think about it for a second. And I, and what I told the board is I said, I don't want to be the CEO. I, I said, I have, I have the best job with the right. best mission, with the best people. Um, I'm thoroughly happy doing, you know, what I've done and I'm doing. I've been through 25 years in the Marines and I've moved every two years. I'm not looking to make another move, you know, but then it just occurred to me to say, but, you know, this organization or you has been so good to me. It has offered me so many opportunities. It has offered me so many different ways about thinking about things. Ron Townsend was terrific with me and the people right. at Oak Ridge that I work with, or just class acts. And I said, so if you believe that I am the best candidate for this position, you know, then you're not, then I do want to do the position, but I don't do it out of, you know, personal ambition or, you know, or something like that. I was, uh, and I thought, okay, that is it. That is definitely it. They are not calling me back after no that. Call, after you basically right. turn, uh, <laughs> after you turn down, you know, uh, why you want to be, you know, I, I I was actually in the rental car headed back to the airport to fly back to DC when I got called back on that one. Really? So it was, yeah, it was just one of those things. So. <laughs> and so here we are, Michael. Here you are. You That's know? right. Exactly. Well, so you've been with the company 21 years and we're celebrating 
our 75th anniversary starting this, the month of October. Um, I'm expecting you've seen a bit of change in the organization um, over the 21 years and, and specifically in the 11-ish years that you've been president and CEO. Yes, I mean, I mean, change is always constant, but it's always, it's always dynamic. And, you know, certainly the last couple of years have shown how dynamic you know, change can be. Um, but if I've always been kind of a student of change and such that I think we should always see the opportunity in it and, and really try to exploit the opportunities that, you know, uh, changes bring about. So had we not had COVID, um, we would not have thought about uh, so much about remote work. Or, you know, can employees really work just as efficiently and productively at home? Um, and COVID has shown us that we can. Um, tremendously productive at home. Um, and so it's, it's changing how we're thinking about the workplace and changing how we're thinking, you know, about the workforce. Um, you know, we don't necessarily need brick and mortar facilities to bring everybody in at 7:30 in the morning and release them at five o'clock in the afternoon, you know, to be efficient and productive. Um, so it, it has given us the chance to think about how we can do things differently and transform or you into what I just have called uh, a future ready company. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the world is going to change dramatically now that COVID is hopefully easing and, and moving out of here. And you see that now in every, almost every aspect of business, you know, of how COVID has changed the landscape. It changed how people feel about work, changed about how, what motivates people to come to work, not necessarily compensation and salary, you know, right. it also has to do with how they are valued, you know, and, and what they, whether they truly believe in the purpose of what the organization is doing. Um, so, change to me that we've seen a lot of it um and i'm really um want to try to take advantage and exploit uh the opportunity that change like covid you know has brought to our organization to make it much more flexible um much more empowering um much more efficient and even higher performing than we are you know today So we've, we've, you and the leadership team have navigated the company through a lot, you know, including remote work and, you know, the, all of the, all of this stuff associated with the pandemic. Um, how's everyone feeling at this point? Well, I think that um, overall, I think we're feeling great. I mean, we just did an employee survey um, this summer, this spring. And I was kind of holding my breath on that a little bit because I was really interested to see how has COVID impacted our culture? Um, You know, we have been taking these surveys every two years and we have seen over the last, you know, six years, we've seen a steady increase in the improvement in our organizational culture. But I was really concerned with this kind of COVID break and everybody being at home had that, you know, broken you know, um, in some cases, 
kind of the overall feeling of what employees felt about ORU, because certainly they miss the camaraderie. Certainly they miss, you know, the physical thing of being together, you know, and I was concerned about that. And I was, I was really pleasantly surprised to see how well um, the re employees responded uh, on, you know, this past survey. I mean, we have, I think, um, uh, employee relations will have to back me up on this, but we, we measure uh, the employees, we measure how we're doing across 11 dimensions of culture. Um, you know, everything from integrity to accountability to communications to leadership to diversity to empowerment. You know, we, we ask the employees about, you know, the questions are all designed to measure those 11 aspects of organizational culture. And we improved in every single category, um, dramatically improved, you know, in some cases. Um, and that just showed to me how resilient, you know, this workforce is you know, how agile and how um, effective they are. Um, now, some people will say that federal contractors aren't, you know, designed to be agile and flexible, but this workforce is. It, it, is, it is so professional. Um, it, is, it, it, can, it can take a hit and it can keep on going. Um, you know, there's no, no doubt about that. They're, and employees are so smart. I mean, smarter than me. I'm the first president without a PhD in this position. And there's, I'm surrounded by people who are 10 times smarter than I am about things uh, and have great insight into things and can kind of think out of the box. Um, so I, I was really glad to see those results. Now, don't get me wrong, Michael. I mean, we, we have our problems like everybody else, sure. you know, every company does. Um, but we always find a way to fix them. And what, what I found to be so highly effective is that when I see an issue or a problem, and some managers hate me for this because I steal some of their best people in order to do it, but you know, I'll form up a little task force around that problem. I'll put together a cross-functional employee management team, you know, a small team, and I say, okay, guys, here is the issue. You know, study this analyze it and bring me recommendations on how we can fix it. And I really like the way that we do that because it empowers employees who would never get a voice in some of these decisions to have a very active role in helping right. form recommendations that lead to decisions, you know, to, to make us better. And almost every time I see an issue or a problem in the company, I'll be famous for putting these little task forces together to go look at this in a very short period of time and bring recommendations to the executive team, you know, and I really like the fact that they bring such fresh ideas, you know, and intriguing recommendations and things that we had never thought of before, you know, at, at kind of the executive level of the organization. And it gives them a very active role and active voice in helping to satisfy those problems. Um, in fact, you know, they probably see the problem a lot clearer than we do because they're having to live through it, you know, every day, yeah. every day they come to work and they see it. Um, and so they bring that type of perspective. And so I found that, you know, whether it's putting together a strategic plan, uh, looking at small issues, coming up with recommendations on how to be better, um, cross-functional uh, teams, 
uh, of, you know, some really smart, outspoken people um, can really be very helpful. Well, and you talk about empowerment, you talked about being agile and, you know, we, before, before March of 2019, you know, we talked about agile, you know, or March of 2020, sorry. We talked about agile, you know, as a concept and how to get business done, but obviously <laughs> we've demonstrated. Yeah. We've had we to be pretty agile heart, over right? the last couple of years. Yeah. So. We can take that to heart and actually do it. So. Yeah. And, and we, and we're still, and we're still here, you know, and right. we're still, and it, uh, based based upon a very strong financial foundation uh, allowed us to be also, you know, financially resilient, you know, because obviously some of our programs and some of our activities suffered is a result sure. of, you know, COVID. Um, but our strong financial position over the years has really helped us to kind of weather that storm and put us into a position to be more competitive about the future. Um, and I think that's one of the great stories of how we have emerged from, you know, the pandemic. And we're, and I know we can't talk about specifics, but there's some good stuff happening <laughs> on the business development side of the house. So yes, there certainly is. It's, Exciting times to be part of ORE, for sure. Um, so, Andy, we've been around ORU or um, the Oak Ridge Institute for Nuclear Studies, as we were first known, for 75 years. Um, what makes a company strong enough to stand for that long? Uh, well, Michael, I would say it's the people that it attracts. You know, um, Listen, nobody comes here to or you to get rich. Right. You know, we, we don't have stock options and, you know, uh, we're not, you know, a for-profit uh, company. Uh, no one comes here to, you know, make a couple of million dollars and, and move on to their next, you know, big venture. Right. We, what we attract are people who are totally dedicated to the mission of public service. Um, and I think that's who we've always been. Our purpose has always been. Um, working programs for the good of the of, of America, and for the and for the public service of its citizens, and I think what makes us strong is that very strong sense of purpose and mission of who we attract to work here and who comes to work here. I mean, you know, you you've been around, you've seen some of these retirement things. People, I mean, we just we just had a guy who retired here has worked here for forty six years. You know, we, we just had another guy on the watch force who 55. retired yeah. 55 years. I, where and where do you find companies with people like that? Right. I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm always amazed at how long people have worked here and and not just them, but, you know, their their relations, their cousins, they've attracted <laughs> You know, it, it brings a whole kind of a family atmosphere, you know, to a company with just dedicated, very dedicated professional people. And once again, subject matter experts in their own right. I mean, where do you find the subject matter expertise, you know, of people like the, the people in React, you know, or the people that work in the Brilliant Lab or the Cytogenetics Laboratory, you know, or... That the subject matter experts that do peer review, you know, for, you know, major federal agencies. I mean, they are subject matter experts in their own right. Very smart people. 
And, um, you know, I think that when you attract talent like that with the sense of purpose of public service, um, that's what makes this company so great. Um, everybody here wants the best for you. Now, sometimes we'll fight and argue over, you know, what that means, you know, uh, or how to get there, but that's okay. You know, um, healthy debate uh, around our sense of purpose and direction is always welcome. Uh, and, um, but I, I think it's just the fact that we've just got great people. And, and that, I think, is our secret sauce. You know, every company's got a secret sauce. You know, they've got some competitive advantage. The competitive advantage that we have is in the people that we attract, retain, and recruit here. Right. Awesome. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about corporate culture and the employee survey. And, you know, even with um, what we've been through for the last 19 months, you know, we've we've sort of managed to keep a pretty strong <laughs> core, you know, a culture at the core of the company. Um, and a couple of ways we've done that is with, you know, the take three calls once a week and with your monthly um, um, briefing that started as a weekly briefing in the early days of the pandemic, but um, has now sort of become the almost a monthly town hall of, you know, let's get everyone together and let's talk about where we are. Talk about how important that kind of information sharing is for our company. Uh, it's, I think it's absolutely vital. I mean, and that's another great technology change that occurred due to COVID that <clears throat> I don't think we would have even thought of had COVID or, or pandemic not happened. I mean, you kind of remember the brick and mortar town halls that we used to hold like once a quarter. And you were lucky to get 100 people, you know, to show up for that. And then, yeah, you might videotape it and you might put it, you know, out for people to look at. But how many people were really going to go back and look at it, you know, two or three days later? Yeah. On these on these on these take three calls, we do a take three every Wednesday, which is 30 minutes long. It's 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 almost like a radio show. Right. Um, yeah. We attract almost 300 employees to a 30 minute call every week and when we do those you know monthly webinars and you're right we started off weekly but you know they've gone to monthly we get over 500 employees you know listening in on that on that call and i don't know where i could get that many people in one room you know just and it's not just you know death by powerpoint it's we're sharing valuable information and we're opening up the floor to answer any questions that they have, to voice any concerns or bring up any issues that they have. I don't know of a better way of affecting a, you know, exchange of information, both, you know, from me to them and them back to me, um, that a more effective and productive way of, of communicating. And I think that this was borne out in the uh, employee survey too, about how well that has been received by everyone at ORU. These, these take three and webinar um, opportunities. And, and I just find them to be intriguing and delightful. Um, you know, and I'm not put off at all by any questions or issues. Um, you, know, it, you know, sometimes they're hard. Sometimes, sure. you, have, sometimes you have to have a, a very difficult conversation you know, um, with people, but, um, 
I just find it, I find the exchange of information to be energizing for me. And I certainly learn something every time I'm on one of those calls. There's always something I did not know or did right. not appreciate or did not understand better. Um, so I think it's, I think that they have, you know, this, the technology that we're using through Zoom and Teams and, you know, WebEx and all the other platforms that we've used, I think, you know, has also brought us more together mm-hmm. while at the same time we've been very remote, right? But in those, in that hour and a half or that 30 minute call, it brings everybody and centers us on some specific things that we need to, you know, get across and get some specific issues back up to me so I further and better understand how the organization's doing. So I think they've been great. Well, and I love how you talked about the Q&A part. And, you know, you and, and Megan Millwood and Donna Craigle and whoever else is presenting, you know, you'll answer those questions as long as they keep coming. So, you know, <laughs> as long as people have questions, they're, they get to get them in. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that we talk about? No, I think, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the past and we've talked a lot about how we got here and we talked a little bit about, you know, the present where we are. Um, you know, um, I am focused now on post-pandemic plans. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm focused on how we emerge from COVID. And I think, you know, of course, you know, we, we thought we were emerging and then the Delta variant came back in and, right. you know, we had to retreat a little bit. But, you know, um, I, I actually, I was, you know, sitting, I was talking to my VP for HR uh, this morning and saying, let's start thinking about a new re- re-entry date, you know, mm-hmm. because we have some exciting recommendations. I mean, the employee empowerment team, another one of these teams I put together, has come up with 18 recommendations on how we emerge from COVID as a future-ready company, how we redesign the workplace, how we um, redesign uh, and accommodate the needs of the work of the workplace and the work and the workforce itself. And I'm excited about instituting those recommendations and getting them and getting going and about kind of positioning us um, in a very integrated way because I, I came to appreciate the whole integration process in my time in the national security program of how we integrate both technology, you know, the workforce, um, quality control, uh, efficient and productive and high performance together to emerge um, more competitive for the future than we were prior to the pandemic. Um, and as you kind of alluded to, we've got some great business opportunities that we're pursuing. Um, you know, we've got some, you know, major contracts that we've had for uh, many years that we do not take for granted, nor do we take our customers for granted that we need to protect. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're once again working our way through a continuing resolution, but that's just become normalized at this point, you know. Um, we've become very adept at maneuvering through continuing resolutions. So I think the only thing I would just wrap up with is that the future for this organization is great. I mean, it really is. And we've got some tremendous opportunities that I think that are going to um, make even a more dynamic, challenging environment you know, to work in. And I am committed to ensuring that we 
you know, mold the workplace and um, accommodate the workforce to be the best it can be in kind of meeting these challenges. And I'm very excited about getting started, you know, to get those things uh, moving in terms of redesigning the workplace, accommodating the workforce, um, you know, being competitive for these new opportunities, you know, building on those opportunities to make the organization even better, you know, than it was today. You know, Phil, Phil Andrews is my friend. He's my CFO. I mean, Phil always has a fa has a phase about leaving it better than you found it. Right. You know, that's my motto too. You know, I came into this organization 21 years ago. You know, I don't know how much time I have left. You know, that's right. at the pleasure that's at the pleasure of my board of directors. Um, but I do intend to leave it better than I found it. So we need to add a word to our tagline: better, further together. <laughs> better, further together. Yeah. There you go. Um, Andy, last question for you. Um, what brings you joy? I'm sorry, what was the question? What brings you joy? I think what brings me joy, uh, of course, my family, you know, my dogs, my cat. Um, I'm sitting here with my coworker who's a Scotty who thinks <laughs> it's supper time already. So, you know, um, you know, obviously, you know, my grandchildren, you know, the my family. But if I had to think about work and what brings me joy at work. I think it's the job satisfaction of kind of um, helping people see the potential in themselves and giving them the same advantages that leadership gave me. Um, I certainly would not be here today if it hadn't been for people like Ron Townsend, you know, who believed in me as his national security director and, you know, um, provided mentorship and counsel even when I screwed some things up royally, and I'm still I'm still in Picard jail and in procurement. I'm sure for doing some things that I shouldn't have done when I was a program director. I said, right. but um, uh, what brings me joy is paying back and paying that forward, you know, and seeing the talent um, in people at work and providing them the opportunity to exploit that talent and be the best that they can be. I guess that's what you know, the whole, uh, I guess, servant leadership side of leadership intrigues me because I've always been someone who's dedicated my life to public service. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And thank you, Andy, for your time today. Michael, it has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on the program uh, and look forward to any other time you want to have me back. And of course, best of luck to you and what you're doing and appreciate your leadership as well. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to ORAU at 75, a special series celebrating ORAU's 75th anniversary. To learn more about our history, visit the About section of our website, ORAU.org, and scroll down to Our History.